Consecrate us now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let our souls look up with a steadfast hope and our wills be lost in thine. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to your precious bleeding side. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God be praised. It's wonderful to be back home again. I don't just mean the building of North Glencoe Church. I'm talking about with the people. You have loved me for many years. <coughs> Authentically loved me. I have a very, very a strong attachment in my heart to you. I love you. I, those are not just words. I really, really love you. A year without North Glencoe is an incomplete year for Robert Smith. That is not my attempt to ask to be invited. I'd come anyway. <laughs> you don't have to be invited to come home. This is home. Pastor Tom, the Lord's hand is heavily upon you, and you have your hand on the pulsating heartbeat of God the mission of the church. You understand that so well. I appreciate you and your family. I see people that I know so well, Dr. Cy Smith and his sweet wife who are here. Great pastor, great theologian. So good to see you all again. My dear, dear armor bearer sitting next to her fine husband that the Lord has done a mighty work here. And we were just sharing about how God had not only healed you, but healed our son. When doctors um, thought it was impossible. But God specializes in things that seem to be impossible. And he will do what no other power can do. Uh, this singing, I'm telling you, I think the angels must stop and say to God, can we take a break and listen to North Glencoe sing? I am so serious. I have been ministered to in such a rich way. Such a melodious tune, but a greater text. You sing the text of scripture in melodious, tune-filled ways. So it's just a joy to, uh, to be here. Thank you, uh, Sister Susie Weems, special sister of mine, love her dearly. She has already prepared my dinner for me to take with me. She always looks out for the boy, always. Takes care of her little brother. So grateful for that. The 38th chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah chapter 38. I want to read verses 7 through 13, and I want to talk about old rags and worn out clothes. Old rags and worn out clothes. Hear these words from Jeremiah 38, 7 through 13. I'm reading from the New International Version of the English Bible. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, 
heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take thirty men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, Put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so, and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. The word diaspora means to scatter. So a diasporan is an individual who has been uprooted from a certain social geographical location and transplanted in another social geographical location. Scattered. Mm. That's the word that you see in James chapter 1, verse 1. James says that he is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered throughout the nations. Diaspora. They are diasporans, people who have been uprooted from one social location and transplanted in the soil of another social location. It's the same word that's found in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, where the text says, Luke the author writes, that when persecution broke out in Jerusalem, all of the believers scattered from Jerusalem, except the apostles, to Judea to Samaria, and ultimately to the utmost parts of the world. In this instance, it is the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 who will go back to Ethiopia, which is the extent of the knowledge of the then known world. They scattered. And then in verse number 4 of Acts chapter 8, the text says, and it's a play on words, as these believers who left Jerusalem because of persecution, and persecution is God's providential will because he had promised through Jesus that the gospel would not remain in Jerusalem. Do you hear those words in Acts 1 and 8? And you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But they're still in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, the utmost parts of the earth. They're still in the huddle and have not yet broken huddle to play the game. So God has the light of fire under them called persecution. Second century A.D. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You want to see the church grow? Persecution. You want to know why the church is growing in third world countries? Persecution. We have become fat and comfortable, and Christianity is casual and convenient. 
and prosperity theology is offering this. If you follow Jesus, everything in your life will be all right. And you need to stop listening to this rinky-dink kind of preaching. You better listen to what Jesus says in John 16 and 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And the Bible says in Acts 8 and 4, when persecution broke out, they scattered from Jerusalem. And everywhere they scattered, they scattered the word. Wherever they scattered, they scattered the word, which in essence meant that God gave them a ministry that was not predicated or based upon social location. Wherever they went, they scattered the word. It's really true with your jobs. I tell people this everywhere, but I have to say it again. The ultimate purpose of your job is not to provide for you funding. God takes care of ants, feeds robins. God can take care of you without punching in a time clock. Robins don't do that. Birds don't do that. Bumblebees don't do that. And God can take care of you. If his eye is on the sparrow, then he certainly is watching you. And I'm not encouraging slowfulness and laziness at all. I'm saying that you are an undercover agent on your job for Jesus, that you have been planted there to scatter the Word of God. If you are an astronomer and you study the stars, your ultimate purpose is to point people to Jesus, who is the bright and morning star, the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. If you are a botanist and you study plants, your ultimate purpose is to point people to Jesus, who is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. If your job is that of a cosmetologist, to make people look good and do hair, that's wonderful. But the ultimate purpose of your job is to point people to Jesus, who is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. If you are a dietitian or a chef, and you are fixing food that tastes good. Your ultimate purpose is to point people to Jesus that can hear people say after the result of him saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, when my mama at 94 years of age fixes a meal, I mean a real good meal, you don't begin to use your multisyllabic phrases to describe the food. If it's real good food, you just say, mm, mm. 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 And when you taste Jesus, no adjective, no description, no modifier can describe how good he is. All you can do is just sometimes can't grunt. All you do is just shake your head and just say, mm. 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 because your job is to point people to Jesus who is more than finger-licking good. If you are an educator, your ultimate job is to point people to Jesus who is the wisdom of God. And if you are a mortician or funeral director, your ultimate job is not to point people to the undertaker, but to the overtaker, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. If a person would believe in me, though he be dead or she be dead, they will live again. And the person who lives and believes in me shall never die. If you are a geologist and you study rocks, your ultimate job is to point people to Jesus, who is the rock of ages. 
And if you are a jeweler, your ultimate purpose is not to cut diamonds and precious stones, but to point people to Jesus, who is the pearl of great price. So wherever you are, you are scattered to scatter the Word of God and to take and infuse within that atmosphere the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are diasporans. They have been uprooted from their social location, and these disciples have spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately into the utmost parts of the earth. Well, you and I are diasporans. In fact, we are double citizens. According to Psalm 137, 1-4, you, you hear this mournful, doleful cry of these Jews who are now exiles in Babylon. They're going to be there for seven decades, 70 long years because of their adherence to idolatry, because of their incessant falling away from God. And you listen to them by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willow trees in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they who wasted us required of us mirth, that is, entertainment, saying, Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. And their response is, while they live in Babylon, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? I think they should have sung because the strange land is still his land. The earth is still the Lord's, the fullness thereof. And old brothers and sisters, you have to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. People who don't understand what you're talking about, you have to keep telling the story until they become like-minded, just like you. Sing his song on your job. Sing his song in your neighborhood. Sing his song in Walmart. Sing his song wherever you are. Even when you have to come to a funeral, sing his song because the song doesn't end at the funeral. It just begins because Jesus raises the dead from the grave. You and I are called to be citizens in a strange land. We are dual citizens. According to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, the Bible says uh, that Paul speaks and says, our citizenship is in heaven. Mm. Yes, I'm a Roman citizen here, but my primary citizenship is in heaven, where I await for the appearing of our glorious Lord, who shall change our vile and corruptible body like unto his glorious body. I am a double citizen. I'm a citizen in heaven eternally, and I'm a citizen on earth temporarily, double citizenship. In fact, I think I'm looking at a three or four hundred people here who have to admit, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My hope and all my treasures lie somewhere beyond the blue. The angels are beckoning me from heaven's open door, and I just can't feel at home in this world anymore. I am a double citizen, and therefore we have to be careful about how we treat people who are different than we are. Bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. 
the wretched refuge of the teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempests tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Those words on the Statue of Liberty, where the masses come. And you and I as Christians, I'm just not talking about Americans. I'm talking about Christians. Have to be careful how we treat people who are different than we are. They live in our neighborhoods. They go to our schools. They shop with us. And yet, the color of their skin is different than ours. Their language is different than ours. I've got to remember that every human being has the imprint of God on the fabric of their soul. It's called the image of God. And God thought so much of every human being that when he got ready to really create us, everything else he just spoke into existence. He spoke and the sun came into existence and uh, stayed there without an upright. Right. He just spoke and the sky came into existence and no one needed to paint it blue and no one needed to put a state ladder there to paint it. And God wrote songs for robbers to sing and God covered the earth with green grass and God scooped out the valleys and piled up mountains and God put the floaty fleecy clouds in the sky and God took and made the orange colored sun and there it stayed there from the time he spoke into existence until this very day. But when God got ready to make Mark and his wife, God took and stooped down and got some of himself on them. And, got, and they got some of themselves on him, so much so that they are made in the image of God. Every person is made in the image of God. Red, yellow, black, white, brown, learn, unlearn, high, low, rich, or poor. And I've got to be careful how I treat those who are different than I am. Immigrants. Why? I've got to treat them on this earth as if I am participating in a Kodak moment of the future state of eternity. And I've got to be careful about how I treat them here because in essence I am participating in a Polaroid snapshot shot of the future state of eternity. Do you understand according to Revelation 5 and 9 and 7 and 9 some of the very people that you and I might just want to separate ourselves from and be sequestered and isolated because we are if you will priests and Levites and we don't want to have anything to do with that Samaritan who has been robbed beaten and left half dead but according to Revelation 5 9 and 7 nine people from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue are going to be part of the kingdom of God. And it's going to really be something. If I stand on the heavenly shore and I look around and that individual who worked in Walmart, that's not like me, can't speak my language, and I look down my long nose at that individual, and that person is participating in the celestial choir for me. And guess what? I can't leave after the service is over. We're going to be together for eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. So I'd better get used to being with Mark and his wife because we're going to share together forever. And therefore, we must learn how to treat those who are different than we are. You know what God said to Israel? Israel, be careful how you treat the immigrant because you used to be immigrants. You were strangers. This was not your land. And therefore... 
when you come to harvesting your crop, leave grain on the stalk for the wayfarers. Because you used to be a wayfarer. Think about individuals who are citizens in this country and may not even be, and know that what they really need more than an earthly residence is a spiritual heavenly residence. And the gospel needs to be presented to them because they are made in the image of God. In this particular text, here's a man by the name of Ebed-Melech. He comes from Ethiopia. The name for Africa in antiquity was Ethiopia. And later on, it becomes Nubia. And later on, Cush. Africa is not a country. Africa is a continent that consists of 58 countries. And this man, probably doing one of the raids, is uprooted from his social location in Ethiopia and sold to the king, King Zedekiah, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, and is on the royal staff of King Zedekiah. Maybe a custodian, uh, maybe a higher position than that, but he is living in the royal residential area, a long way from Ethiopia. Uh, God is going to use him to save from death one of the greatest prophets in all of the Bible. His name is Jeremiah. Jeremiah had to be great because when Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 16, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? In verse 14 of Matthew, the Bible says that some of them said, you are Jeremiah. Jesus and Jeremiah, similar. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus in Luke 19, 41, wept over the walls of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah weeps. Do you not hear him say in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears. I'd weep day and night for the daughter of my people. Both of them were sensitive. Both of them were compassionate. Both of them were courageous. And to be considered in the same light as Jesus uh, was not a small compliment. And here Jeremiah is put into a muddy cistern where there is no water and in the city food is depleted. He will die of thirst and starvation unless someone comes and speaks up. And the one who comes to speak up is Ibed Melech, that African from Ethiopia who God has now placed in the royal staff, on the royal staff of King Zedekiah, not just to work, but to be a witness of the cause of the kingdom and to be the one who would orchestrate the deliverance of Jeremiah himself. God takes and uses diasporans, people who have been uprooted from their social soil and location and transplanted into the social soil and location in another place. Joseph was not born in Egypt. Joseph was born in the homeland. But his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. It looked uh, like a tragedy, but it was by providential design. He goes down to Egypt to make a contribution. 
and there God will raise him up and make him the vice regent or the vice president of the United States of Egypt. And because of his ingenious plan, he is able to convince the Pharaoh that there will be seven years of famine and seven years of a bumper crop. Now, the seven years of bumper crop, if you will just take some of the grain and save it so that when the seven years of famine come, there will be a place for your people to come and get grain and not die and be exterminated as a result of uh, starvation. But what the Pharaoh did not know was that there was a famine also in the homeland where Joseph had come from. And Joseph's brothers had come down to Egypt and they'd get grain. And because they had access to grain, it meant that they did not starve to death. Had they died of starvation, that would have meant that uh, uh, Judah would have died. And if Judah had died, there would not have been a Boaz. And if there was no Boaz, there would not have been an Obed. And if there was no Obed, there would not have been a Jesse. And if there was no Jesse, there would not have been a David. And if there was no David, there would not have been a Jesus. And God allowed uh, Joseph to go to Egypt as a diaspora in order for him to save his family and keep the conduit open for Jesus Christ to come through Judah and be born in Bethlehem. Here is a person that God uses as a diaspora for his kingdom. There's a little girl, we don't even know her name, in 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, the five-star general who has all kinds of decorations on his um, uh, soldier's uniform. Uh, we know him as Naaman, the five-star general of Syria. Syria was the nemesis, the arch enemy of Israel, the northern kingdom. But during one of the raids, apparently, they took and carried some of the people back to Syria and employed them in various places. The Bible says this little girl, who is anonymous, we don't know her name at all, is employed in the house of Mr. and Mrs. Naaman. And this little girl uh, has taken her God with her. She doesn't believe God is territorial at all. When she left uh, Israel, Samaria being the capital, she took her God with her because God is not territorial. You, you can't box him in. God is not nationalistic. Uh, America does not have any monopoly on God. Egypt doesn't have a monopoly on God. Germany doesn't have a monopoly on God. Nobody owns God at all. You can't put God in a box. He'll break it every time. He's too big for that. And this little girl starts saying to Mrs. Naaman, you know, I know someone in Samaria who knows someone. And if my master, Mr. Naaman, could go to Samaria, Israel, and could get in touch with the someone that I know who knows of someone that I know, then he could come back healed because he has leprosy. Uh, he has cancer. No cure for it at all. Mm. And you know, this little girl must have had great influence because Naaman was willing to take her up on her suggestion to leave, Samaria, leave Syria, go down to Samaria, which is the Lord and kingdom, Israel, and ask for Elisha to heal him. Well, Elisha said, look, I've got the directions, and if you just follow them, you will be healed. Go and dip in the muddy Jordan River seven times. Well, he went down, and he didn't like it because he said the Farfar River and the Abana River are much more clean rivers. Why would I come hundreds of miles down here to dip in the, the muddy water of Jordan? But his entourage says, you've come this far. Why don't you just do what the prophet said? And so he dipped. 
The first time, nothing happened. The second time, nothing happened. Third, fourth, and fifth time, nothing happened. The sixth time, nothing happened. Still leprous skin. But when he did it the seventh time, because God said seven, when he did it the seventh time, he came up and his skin looked like that of a little baby. And evidently he's converted because Second Kings chapter 5, verse number 19, the Bible says that he asked for some dirt from Israel so he could go back to Samaria and build an altar, not to his gods, which were idol gods, but to the only God in the universe, Yahweh. And this man is, if you will, converted because the little girl who left her home and was uprooted, transplanted in the soil of another. Kept her testimony so that she is consistent not only in Samaria, but consistent in Syria. I wish that we would have that kind of consistency when we go on vacation. That we understand that we don't take a vacation from God wherever we go. If you go to Europe, you ought to be Christian. If you go to China, you ought to be Christian. If you're on your job, if you're at Walmart, wherever you are, you ought to be Christian because we represent God wherever we are. And here, brothers and sisters, is Jesus himself the greatest of all of the diasporans. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse number 10 and 11, that he took and created the world, and he was in the world. Listen to this. But the world didn't recognize him. Verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, verse 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those who believed on his name. He was in the world, but not of the world, and changed the world because he had a 33-year mission that he accomplished, died on Friday, rose on Sunday, and was not in a hurry to get back to heaven. He wanted to give irrefutable proofs, so he hung around 40 long days and then promised the disciples, I'm going to leave you physically, but I'm not going to leave you spiritually because I'm going to give you another comforter. I can only be with you. He's going to get in you. The Holy Spirit will live in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, while we are diasporans on this earth, please know that we are not orphans. We have not been abandoned. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He walks with us. He talks with us. He tells us that we are his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Ebed Melech is this Ethiopian. And I want you to look at him and look at Jeremiah and look at Zedekiah. Jeremiah is the prophet of God. He is called in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, uh, and God calls him. But he's not only called, he's drafted. He doesn't want to be a prophet. He doesn't want to be a preacher. He comes, but he comes kicking and screaming. He comes objecting. He comes saying to God, God, I'm too young. God says, before you were conceived, I knew you. And before you were born, I had already ordained you to be a prophet before they set up an ordination council for you. Well, Lord, look at the faces of these individuals. They are disinclined toward hearing me. They have frowns on their faces. You can tell that their teeth are clenched. They are upset. They won't hear what I have to say. The Lord says, don't be afraid of their faces, chapter 1, verse 8, because I'm with you to deliver you. 
Chapter 1, verse 19, I am with you to deliver you. As if to say, do you need anything more than me? If I am the Emmanuel, I am with you. Then what more do you need? As a little girl who misquoted Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But her theology was right. She said, the Lord is my shepherd, what more do I want? And if the Lord is your shepherd, what more do you want? Because if he is your shepherd, he has absolutely everything that he that you and I will ever need. He supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this uh, Ethiopian uh, eunuch is what he really is. He is indispensable, absolutely necessary in terms of God choosing him to deliver Jeremiah from certain death. Uh, Jeremiah was a melancholic kind of prophet. In fact, he is on Judah's most unwanted speaking list. Nobody wants to hear Jeremiah. He's got the wrong message. Jeremiah says, look, uh, you, Judah, will be going to captivity for 70 long years. That's what he says. He speaks this in Jeremiah 38, verses 2 and 3. He says to the nation and to the king, Zedekiah, listen, those of you who will surrender and will accept the ultimatum, the absolute surrender of King Nebuchadnezzar, and you will not resist it, then you will live. Yes, you're going into captivity for 70 years, but you will live. But if you take and resist it and fight against it, you're going to per perish by pestilence, by famine, and by the sword. So you're going to be defeated. Accept it. And you know, the official said, that's the wrong message. This man is a traitor. He is demoralizing not only the troops that are fighting for us and defending our city at the wall, but he's discouraging those people, the citizens inside of the wall. He deserves to be killed. But there's another prophet by the name of Hananiah. In the 28th chapter of Jeremiah, he's got a better message. He says, now Jeremiah is right. We're going into captivity. That's true. But uh, he's got his mathematics messed up. He, he doesn't know how to add. Uh, he said 70 years. God told me uh, two years, two years. Well, see, I like Jeremiah. Uh, I, I rather had a nice message because uh, if Jeremiah is wrong and I'm 69 years of age right now and uh, I'm going to go into captivity for 70 years, uh, then I ain't coming back. <laughs> but if Hananiah is right, two years, then I could come back perhaps at 71. That's not unusual. I want his message. The only problem is God didn't give it to him. And the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 17, the same year that Hananiah uttered this prophecy, he died because the ultimate proof of an authentic prophet is whether or not the prophecy comes to pass. And here's a man who was popular, Hananiah, but he was also a dead man because he did not say what God said to say. Jeremiah is a melancholic prophet. Listen to him in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we're not yet saved. In other words, the wheat, the grain, the corn, representing people, are not harvested, dying on the stalk. And these people that I've been ministering to for 40 years, because he ministered for 40 years, are still not harvested. Still unsaved. That's discouraging. When you preach and prophesy and do what God tells you to do and you see little or no results. Chapter 8, verse 22. He asked a question after, 20, 
after 40 years. Is there no balm that is no medicine uh, in Gilead? Is there no physician there? If so, then why is it that my people are still sick? I've been the doctor. I've got the right medicine. And yet they're not made well. Well, brothers and sisters, what we need to do is take Jeremiah's question mark and straighten it out and make it an exclamation point and reverse the first two words. Not is there, but there is. There is a bomb in Gilead that can make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead that can heal a sin-sick soul. Don't live a life of the interrogative, asking questions. Live a life of the exclamatory, making statements. There is a God who rules above with hands of power and heart of love. And if I'm right here fighting my battles, there's room at the cross for you. Though many have come, there's still room for one. There is room at the cross for you. Stop asking, is there? And start saying, there is. There is a God who can make a way out of no way. There's a God who can do everything except fail. There is a God. But Jeremiah is melancholy. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, we've already alluded to that. He says, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were fountain of tears. I weep day and night for the daughter of my people. He loves the people. Very next verse, verse 2, oh, that I could find an inn in the desert where I could get the heck away from these people. Up and down and up and down. And yet God uses him. He even gets to the point where he decides that he is going to leave ministry. Chapter 20, verse 9, I said I would not speak anymore in his name, but his word was in my heart like fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary of holding it in. Indeed, I could not. And because of his staunch position, being unswerving, being inflexible, being uncompromising, in terms of telling the folk what God said, they put him in a dungeon where there is no water and he's sinking in the mud and food is depleted and water is gone and he will die in a few days. He's in a terrible position. But there's King Zedekiah who is the puppet king of the southern kingdom. He is the son of Josiah, one of the righteous kings of Judah. Uh, Josiah was a righteous king. He, he was one of the friends of uh, Jeremiah. Uh, he is the one under which God chose to start revival in Judah. Uh, under his administration, the Bible is found in the temple, in the church. Now, I, I understand how the Bible could get lost in the school, and I understand how the Bible could get lost in government. Uh, but how do you lose the Bible in the church? And the Bible, said, the Bible says that the word was discovered uh, in the temple. Under the administration of Josiah, Josiah was a righteous king. He had a son by the name of Jehoiakim, who was a king who had no reverence and respect for the Bible. For in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, Jehoiakim took the scroll, the scripture, and cut it up and threw it in the fire. That was one of the sons of Josiah. His other son, Zedekiah, became a king. And Zedekiah resembles Pilate more than anybody else in the Bible. He had no backbone. Uh, he, had, he was a jellyfish kind of king. He wouldn't stand up for what was right. You see it there in Jeremiah 38 and 5, where these officials who want to put Jeremiah in the cistern, 
He says, I can't oppose you. I'm just a king. What? You're just a king. You can do what you can do because you're in position to do it. But he did not want to fall into the disfavor of the people just like Pilate did not want to fall into the disfavor of those when he asked the people, what evil has Jesus done? And then tried to take and absolve himself from it and took a bowl with water in it and washed his hand. What he needed was not a bowl with water in it, but he needed the blood of Jesus to wash not only his hand, but to wash his heart. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how precious is the flow that can make me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And here is Zedekiah who says in chapter 37, verse number 3, he says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, pray to, listen to this, our God for us. Our God. It's amazing how we can make God our God when a crisis breaks out. He's not our God until a crisis breaks out. Hmm. The question is not, is God on our side? The question is, are we on his? I want to say, first of all, to the church, judgment must begin at the house of God. And therefore, God is saying to us, we need to get in order. Repentance needs to start in the church. Well, I don't need to repent. I've been saved. You know, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the Castle Church of Wittenberg. The very first thesis had to do with the perpetual repentance of the believer. In other words, after you get saved, your repentance doesn't stop. It continues. Is anybody here, aside from Robert Smith, needs to repent? Even my tears of repentance are not worthy to be accepted by the Lord. They need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. My tears! I'm talking about not only actions, but attitudes. I'm not only talking about uh, the kind of things we do, but temperaments and dispositions and motives, doing right things for wrong reasons. And I don't need you to look around and look at Pastor Tom and look at me. I need every one of us to draw a circle and every one of us to stand in that circle and say, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my father, not my sister, not my brother, not the preacher, not the teacher, not the singer, not the deacon, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And if every one of us would do that, revival would break out because all of us would recognize that we are being seen in the light of God, not seen as we compare ourselves to each other. Sure, you can stand next to somebody else and you look pretty righteous. Stand next to Jesus. Tell me how you look, Robert Smith, because his eyes of bronze will see through me, and I will see myself, and I will be like Isaiah. Oh, I'm woe unto me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of unclean people, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, Jeremiah, pray to our God. Uh, but the nation needs to understand 
that God will not be monopolized and God will not be used. I used to think as I was growing up for a while that God was black. I'm talking about real young teen. God's black. Maybe some of you thought God was white. <laughs> God's yellow, God's brown, God's red. I'll tell you what God is. God. God's just God. Not male, not female. He's just God. Not Republican, not Democrat, not independent. He's just God. He's God all by himself. And our nation needs to hear anew what God has said. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. I'm always amazed at Christians who are more interested in being patriots than being Christians. I don't, I'm not interested in whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent. I want you to put the word Christian before your party. Christian Democrat, Christian Republican, Christian Independent. I don't want you to let the adjective be your party. Democratic Christian. Republican Christian, independent Christian, because Christian ought to define and describe how you are as a political adherent. I want us to be Christian. Be a Christian Republican. Be a Christian Democrat. Be a Christian independent, because if you're that, whatever you do regarding your party, you'll do it because you're a Christian and not because you are a political adherent. All oh, brothers and sisters, do you know when we stand before God, Democrat, Republican, and Independent will never be brought up? Heaven doesn't know anything about that name. In fact, heaven doesn't know anything about Baptist, about Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian. No, heaven knows about one name, Christian. And when you're Christian, he says, well done, thy good and thy faithful servant. He is Zedekiah. And he asked the Lord, he asked Jeremiah in verse 17 of Jeremiah 37. He says, Jeremiah, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah says, yes, but it's the same word I've been giving you all along. You want a word from the Lord? That's what I've been giving you. I'm not going to jest it. I want you to trust it. It's amazing how we have tried to be politically correct and change the word. The word doesn't need to be adjusted, but just trust it. We use all these euphemisms, and we don't want to call sin, sin, so we just say, well, he committed adultery, or rather, he committed an affair. No, that's adultery. Uh, well, we don't say he stole or she stole. No, they pilfered. They embezzled. Uh, well, we don't say they lied. We say uh, they are guilty of prevarication. Uh, but sin is sin, and you spell sin, S-I-N, with I in the middle. And every one of us is in the middle of sin. And we need to come to God and understand there is a word from the Lord, and that word never changes. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And there's no adjustment, no stretching it. I know that we want to be popular, and we want to bring it down and water it down so it's popular. But there's only one way to Jesus, one way to God, and he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's only one mediator between God and humans, the man Christ Jesus. Zedekiah is a king, but he's a puppet king who is catering to the popularity that he wants to hold among the people. But there's this third person. It is this Ethiopian eunuch. His name is Ebed Melech. He's from Africa. He's from Ethiopia. 
which later becomes Nubia and Cush. He has not forgotten how to live because God has promoted him and he's in the royal staff. I think sometimes God can't trust us with promotion. I remember very well preaching at a very auspicious occasion with professors and presidents of universities and scholars, all that. And I'm sitting down getting ready to preach, and I was moved. How in the world uh, would I have the opportunity? This has been many years ago to stand before that kind of audience. And God asked me a question. He says, how high can I lift you without losing you? How high? Can I trust you in these kind of settings so that you remember, Robert Smith, this is not about you. This is about me. Can I allow you to be in this kind of audience with all of this dignity and all of this honor and all of this acclaim and you stay where you're supposed to stay as one who has come to represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I just heard him ask me that just a few moments before I came up. How high can I lift you without losing you? God wants to know, can I trust you as I bless you and promote you? Oh, yes, oh, yes, you, you gave your tithes when you're only making $300 a week. But now that you make $3,000 a week, uh, it's too much money to give God. Oh, I mean, when you had to go into your closet on Sunday uh, to pick out what you were going to wear, you didn't have to spend much time there because there was just only one suit. It was a suit you called, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine suit. The only suit you wear every single Sunday. But now you go into your closet and you spend about uh, one hour deciding what you're going to wear because you got clothes in the closet that still have price tags on it. And everything, of course, has to match shoes, have to match socks and stockings, have to match dresses, have to match pocketbook, has to match, and those who still wear hats have to match, and you get all dressed up. And then you decide, no, I don't think this looks right, and you go back and rechange again. You're half an hour late. Before then, you don't have any problem because you only had one good church dress. But now that I have blessed you, mm, and no longer are you in cotton fields, you're in Oldsmobiles. You've come from cotton sacks to Cadillacs. But somehow you're walking in the clouds and you have lost your humility. And God is saying to you, I want to take you back so that you understand this is not about you. It's all about me. And here is Ebed Melech, who has been brought all the way from Ethiopia to be a member of the royal staff of King Zedekiah. First of all, he is a man who is a eunuch. A eunuch is someone who has been emasculated, hmm. whose male genitalia has been crushed, are cut off. According to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, any male whose male genitalia has been crushed or cut off can never enter into the assembly of God. Couldn't go to church. That's why in Acts chapter 8, this Ethiopian eunuch couldn't go into the temple. He heard Peter preach, but he couldn't go into the temple because he's a eunuch. And he didn't get saved at the temple. He got saved on the Gaza road. Here's a man who could not go to church. He could not produce life, but he could protect life. Couldn't produce life, emasculated, but he could protect the life of Jeremiah. Amen. Oh, brothers and sisters, you may not be able to sing like angels. You may not be able to preach like Paul, 
but you can tell the love of Jesus that he died to save us all. Stop spending all your time complaining about what you've lost and praise God for what you have left. And you've got so much left. Use what you've got left to glorify God. And here's a man who protects the life of Jeremiah. Young people, you can protect the life of some of your friends who are on a collision course with self-destruction. Number one, stay away from it yourself. Stop experimenting. Uh, be satisfied with what God has made you to be. Uh, that was an episode uh, shown not long ago, killer bodies, bodies that are deemed to be worth dying for silicone shots and this and that to enlarge the buttocks and to extend the chest and all of that. And some of these people are dying, misfigured and everything else because they want to have a body uh, that Hollywood approves. Don't they understand what uh, the Lord said? And he meant it when he says in Psalm 139 verse 14, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God didn't make a mistake with you. I'm 150 pounds, and my wife loves this, two, or rather 250 pounds, and my wife loves this 250-pound chocolate drop. I don't need to be anything else because she loves me for who I am. And I want to say to young people, stop cutting yourself. Stop trying to make your body fit into what Hollywood says and understand that you can be comfortable in your own skin. And here is this man who has some drawbacks. He can't produce life, but he can protect life. And there are people all around us whose lives are in great danger. And we can protect not only their physical life, but their spiritual life. But not only that, this Jeremiah is in a pit. And the manner in which he is saved is extraordinary. Because King Zedekiah now comes to himself and says to Abed-Melech, Go to the storeroom and get some old rags and worn out clothes and take and put them underneath. Uh, tell Jeremiah when you let down the ropes to put the padding underneath your arms because you're already emaciated and uh, you're already anemic probably. You're certainly hungry. You've lost all kind of weight. So let the old rags and worn out clothes serve as a buffer for you so that when you're pulled up by these ropes, it won't cut into your flesh. It's the manner in which the man is delivered. We have well, uh, we have good intentions, but the manner in which sometimes we seek to deliver people causes further injury. Do you know that a person can fall and you just take and pick them up and you can injure them uh, and put them in a worse state than to think about it and the person who knows out of the medical field how to do it. It's the manner in which you deliver people. I think, brothers and sisters, that people need more than a handout, they need a hand. And people need more than a checkup, they need a check. And people need more than just one meal on Thanksgiving, there are 365 other days of the year. So therefore, as N.T. Nile says, you teach a man how to fish not just give him fish, but if you teach him how to fish, he'll learn how to fish himself and never starve. I think that we need to know how to deliver people and pour into people and spend time with people and share in the lives of people 
So much so that we, like Pastor Tom, you don't know this, but he's trying to work himself out of a job so that you don't need him any longer. I don't mean he won't pastor. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about he's trying to teach you how to fight spiritual warfare so he can go on vacation, and when your toe aches, you'll have to call him and ask him to interrupt his vacation because you know how to pray through. Even if he doesn't get there in the hospital, you know how to call on the Lord, and you know how just a little talk with Jesus will make things right. He's teaching you that so that you're not dependent upon him you're dependent upon the God that he is uh, talking to you about. It's the manner in which you take and deliver people. And you take, instead of impairing them, you are edifying them. And you're delivering them in a way in which they are helped rather than further injured. But look at the materials. Let down the ropes, Zedekiah says, dear bed Melech, and let down some old rags and worn out clothes so that Jeremiah can put them under his armpits. And when he's pulled up by the ropes, then he will not be hurt and damaged uh, in a further way. Uh, oh, rags and worn out clothes. I know that they look as if they are insignificant and they look expendable and they look unnecessary. Uh, but my wife and my mother are amazing people. Mama never threw away anything. Every pair of pants and jeans and vests and so forth that uh, we began to wear out, she would just take the material, save it, sew it together, keep sewing corduroy and rayon and cotton uh, and the corduroy and denim and all that and make the most warm quilt. Nothing matched, but I declare, uh, in the dead winter, it kept you warm. All rags and worn out clothes. My wife still takes my worn out t-shirts I said, baby, get rid of that. You know, look at, the, look at all the yellow stuff underneath. It's got holes in it and all that. Come on. She said, no, they, they make the best polishing rags. I like to put glade on them and on the, uh, the, uh, on the, uh, on the furniture and use your old uh, undershirts to clean. Uh, you know what God does? God says, I know that you're an old rag and uh, you're an old worn-out piece of clothing. In fact, Isaiah 64 and 6 says, your righteousness is as a filthy rag. Not just a rag, but a filthy rag. I know that kind of punctures our pride because we really think we are somebody. We think that uh, God looks at us and says, mm, wow, look at that integrity. Look at the talent. You know, I think I can use rock. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm valuable because of him. I don't have a thing to offer him. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And if we understand that we are old rags and worn out clothes, worse than that, our righteousness, when we're at our best, we are as a filthy rag. But God can use things that we think are expendable. He can take and use a donkey to speak to Balaam to keep him from being killed. He can take and use the jawbone of an ass that Samson picks up and kills a thousand Philistines. He can take and use a blackbird catering service to feed Elijah two times a meal, two times a day, a meal for him to eat. He can take a dove to signal to Noah that the waters have resided enough so that you can disembark from the ark. He can take a fish 
that has been used as an underwater hotel for three days for Jonah to reconsider whether or not he really wants to go to Nineveh and cause that fish to get intestinal indigestion and vomit Jonah on the shores of Nineveh. And Nineveh is the place he didn't want to go. And yet when God got finished with him, he went there and preached, though he did not want the results that he got. He can take a man like Moses, who is a murderer, and make him the liberator of Israel. He can take David, a man after his own heart, who commits adultery, who commits murder and covetousness, and still use him as a great king. He can take Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons in her, and make her the first human being to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. He can take a, a Samaritan woman, and she had been married five times, and she shacked up with one man, but she needed another man. When she met the seventh man, she went and told the people in her city, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Is this not the Christ? Because Jesus made her the president of the WNU. He can take anybody and use them for his glory. He can even take Simon Peter, who denied the Lord three times. He didn't cancel out his appointment and say to Peter, because you denied me, I'd already scheduled you to preach the church of revival on the day of Pentecost, but because you denied me, I'm going to cancel you. Oh, no. He kept him on the book, and Peter stood up and preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost until 3,000 souls were saved. Don't you understand that God can take and use you? You think that you don't have anything, but God can take you in spite of where you've been. Don't let the devil tell you that you've done too much evil and you've done too much wrong that God can't take and use you. A potter saw a vessel that had been broken by the wind and the waves. He sought with great compassion to put it back together again. But I was that broken vessel that no one thought was any good. I cried, Lord, you're the potter. I'm the clay. Make me over again today. That's when Jesus picked up the broken pieces of my broken heart that day and made me a new vessel and revived my soul again, shackled by heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and stain. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. Since I met that blessed Savior, since he cleansed and made me whole, I will never cease to praise him. I will shout it while eternity rolls. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And all oh, the joy that floods my soul, something happened. I still can't explain it. After 57 years, something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't care what side of the railroad track you were born on. I don't care if you're black, white, brown, yellow, red. I don't care what country you're from. God can use you to bless his cause and bless his kingdom. Old rags and worn out clothes. But then Jeremiah is told by Zedekiah, in the NIV it says, take 30 men to pull Jeremiah up from the cistern. The King James Version says three men. But in other words, this is the job that's too big for just one person. You need some assistance in pulling up Jeremiah from this deep well. They let him down by ropes. He has to be pulled up by ropes. The church must see itself as not a place of individualism. One of our big problems is that we're too individualistic. We are doing ministry alone. Even the long ranger needed Tonto. We need each other. And therefore, we are to be co-laborers together. And our ministry is to be a ministry of interconnectivity. 
and interrelatedness. Uh, but the final thing is that Jeremiah had to do something himself. It's what I call divine human interaction, divine human instrumentality. Let down the old rags and the worn out clothes. Don't go down there. Tell Jeremiah, put him under his own armpits. Nobody's going to do that. We can let down the ropes. We can throw down the old rags and worn out clothes, but he's got to grab hold of the ropes and he's got to put those things under his own arms. God is not going to do everything for you. March around the Jericho walls, Joshua said, after he gets orders from God. One time for six days, and on the seventh day, march around seven times. The walls still don't fall, but then shout. And then God will, without a bulldozer or crane, pull down the walls. But you march around them, I'll bring them down. They have no wine, Jesus. Jesus commands these six men to fill up six water pots, each water pot containing 20 to 30 gallons each. And when Jesus looks at the H2O, two hydrogen atoms and eight oxygen atoms, he looks at the water, and water looks at its crater and blushes in the wine. Nothing added to it. It's just as if our Savior, our crater, is looking at us. But the men have to fill up the pots with water. He could have made it without water, but he allowed them to do what they could do, and then he did what only he could do. There's Lazarus in the tomb. He's been dead for long days, and Jesus shows up four days after the funeral's over. No pastor can stay at a church long if he shows up four days after the funeral, doesn't visit with the family, is not there for the wake. But of course, Jesus could do that because he's the resurrection and the life. He could have stayed 40 days. It didn't make any difference. Uh, but he got there, and he said, uh, uh, roll back the stone. Now, I know you didn't roll it back because you rolled it in front of it, and I rolled it back. And then Jesus did what they couldn't do. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And then when Lazarus came out, he's doing the Bethany shuffle. <laughs> because he's wrapped in grave clothes. And the Bible says, Jesus says, loose him, unwrap him, and let him go. I know you can do that because you wrapped him up. Now unwrap him. Oh, brothers and sisters, God is waiting on us. You want a miracle? You know what God is saying? Pray. Seek my face. Put your trust in me. Don't plan for the benediction. Plan for the invocation. Don't you understand that God is able to do a new thing in terms of rewriting your life insurance policy? And can say to Hezekiah after Isaiah has told Hezekiah what God says, you're going to die and not live. And Isaiah the Bible says that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and told God about his ministry report. And God told Isaiah to go back and tell Hezekiah, I've rewritten your life insurance policy and I've given you 15 more years. Some of us are waiting on death and God wants to say to you, it's not time to die, it's time to live. Some of us have given up on relationships and God can reunite us together. Some of us have given up in terms of finances being reversed and God wants to do something so powerful that will explode those who really know you in terms of their own minds. Oh, but it's got to be divine human instrumentality, what God does, God and us working together. 
Well, brothers and sisters, as I bring this to a close, thanks be to God that there is a Savior who did not despise worn-out clothes and old rags. For the Bible says that Jesus himself, when he was born, he was one who had stepped out of eternity into time. He is one who had taken off his royal crown and put it in the hat rack of heaven. He is one who had taken off his shoes of dignity and put them under the hall trees of time. And here is one who took off his royal robe and put it in the closet of eternity, caught a train of nature, and rode it for nine long months and got off at a little town called Bethlehem of Judea. And the Bible says that when he was born, he was born in a stable, laid in the manger, and wrapped in swaddling clothes, old rags, worn-out clothes. The king of glory was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that he could identify with every one of us. And here is this king who was so poor that everything he had, he had to borrow. He borrowed a mule, a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He borrowed an upper room to celebrate the Last Supper. He borrowed a cross to die on. He borrowed a tomb to be buried in. And when they put him in the tomb, he stayed there for three long days. But when he got up on Sunday morning, he took his grave clothes off. And uh, I could see him folding them. You talk about a great folder. He folded them and took off the napkin around his face, folded it and laid it aside as if to say, I won't be needing these any longer. Uh, Robert Smith's going to need them. I'm going to leave them here for him and let him wear it until resurrection comes. Oh, brothers and sisters, but one of these days, thanks be to God, these grave clothes that I may wear one, a day, one of these days, unless the rapture comes first. I will exchange for a long white robe. There is a robe that I will wear, a robe that has been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and I'll praise Him for eternity. No longer old rags and worn-out clothes, but when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no, 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 no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. These are they who have come up out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What can wash, shall we stand, away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flood. That can make me white as snow. No other founts. I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. My brother, lift up the Lord as we await him doing business with someone in this sanctuary. I want to encourage you tonight that God can take and use you. You're not disqualified. Forgive you, restore you, reinvigorate you, renew you, and use you in his, for his glory.
And you and I need to recommit ourselves by his power to being used, as my brother said, we give nothing less than everything that we have. The invitation is extended. Our brother will sing, we wait upon God to move in this place.